0: And the banker, inspired with a courage so new it was a matter for general remark, rushed madly ahead and was lost to their view in his zeal to discover the snark. But while he was seeking with thimbles and care, a bandersnatch snatch swiftly drew nigh and grabbed at the banker who shrieked in despair for he knew it was useless to fly. He offered large discount. He offered a check, drawn to bearer,
1: for seven pounds ten. But the Bandersnatch merely extended its neck and grabbed at the banker again. Without rest or pause, while those thrumious jaws went savagely snapping around, he skipped and he hopped and he floundered and flopped till fainting he fell to the ground. The Bandersnatch fled as the others appeared, led on by that fear-stricken yell, And the bellman remarked, it is just as I feared and solemnly tolled on his bell.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, are you feeling more frabjous or more frumious today? (laughs) I
1: I guess more frumious. Frumious would be my answer. Uh Uh-huh. That was, of course, uh, the poem The Hunting of the Snark by Lewis Carroll. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I guess a number of people are probably more familiar with the Bandersnatch from another poem. By Lewis Carroll, that being oh a, the Jabberwocky, the Jabberwocky right? yes, yeah. where uh, the, the Bandersnatch is just alluded to as another uh, monstrous creature that might be uh, running around the woods. I love it when a poet
0: first names something in a kind of uh, in a in a listical kind of way, you know, mm-hmm. poem poem as listical, uh, and then later it comes through in another poem
1: with more force. I think that sort of happened with um, with the Demogorgon, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. And and in this case, yeah, the the Bandersnatch, there's not a lot really said about it in the the writings of Lewis Carroll. Uh, Lewis Carroll, by the way, uh, was the the pen name of Charles Lutwich Dodgson, who lived 1832 through 1898. And he first introduced the Bandersnatch, again, just in a list of creatures that might pop up uh, in his 1872 novel, Through the Looking Glass, in that poem, The Jabberwocky, uh, and then pops up again in this 1874 poem that we just read, The Hunting of the Snark. Uh, which uh, we didn't read the whole of the poem. That was just an excerpt mm-hmm. from it, I think, uh,
0: where the, the – like, who's the banker? The banker is one of these people who goes on a voyage hunting the snark. Uh, I think I've read that that poem was – has been interpreted by some as, as metaphorical of, uh, you know, that it's supposed to be an allegory about the search for human happiness and contentment. Uh, but then also, I, I think I've heard it alleged that the poem actually has no allegorical meaning, that it's just it's just kind of silly.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in, in that sense, it's kind of enigmatic. And the creature itself is enigmatic, scarcely described, but certainly best avoided at all costs. There's no way to outrun it, no way to escape its intensity. Uh, and uh, by the way, Frumius uh, is a combination of fuming and furious, Carroll just rammed these two words together to make a nice new adjective for a strange monster.
0: It's a perfectly cromulent word, very frabjous. Um, And I was wondering, do you need a vorpal sword if you go up against a bandersnatch? Or is that only for the jabberwock?
1: Well, it certainly worked on the jabberwocky. I don't know about the bandersnatch. There are no tales of slaying it, are there? At least not in uh, Lewis Carroll's original work. Does the vorpal sword show up as an artifact in D&D? It does. It certainly does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pretty good sword. Oh, yeah. 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 Very good sword. Now, the name Bandersnatch has been invoked many times over the years in works of fantasy and science fiction. I've seen it uh, pop up as a space slug uh, and other such creatures. Sometimes it's just kind of a, an enigmatic name for like a government project or something because <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a great name. Uh-huh. Uh, in depictions of Lewis Carroll's work, it is often taken on a mammalian character. Nineteenth century children's illustrator Peter Newell depicted it as kind of a furry horned beast that might resemble a cat. Or maybe a wolf-like creature, uh, and this one this is a very popular image. Uh-huh. And then film adaptations have depicted it as both boar-like and cat-like. The the, the 2010 Tim Burton adaptation has a, a very memorable creature design for the Bandersnatch.
0: Ooh, Tim! The Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland is that what you're talking about? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I have I've seen the first one. Um, I never ventured that far <laughs> into late Burton. Well, it, it 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 had some things going for it. It had, it had a really good cast. It had some some uh, interesting character designs, I'll say that, okay. and, a, and a very monstrous-looking Bandersnatch. Okay. Now, just a couple of other interesting uh, uh, tidbits about Lewis Carroll. Uh, he was a mathematician. Uh, he worked in geometry and new ideas in algebra, logic machines, ciphers. So between this and other details of, of his life, there's a lot of black mirror to the uh, originator of the Bandersnatch. Uh, also in Hallucinations, uh, the book by Oliver Sacks, uh, the late Oliver Sacks, uh, Sacks points out that Carroll was known to suffer from classical migraines and that uh, Carroll W. Lippman and others have suggested that his migraine experiences uh, may have contributed uh, to uh, the way he envisioned uh, Through the Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland, like the skewing of time and space. Um, also, you have auditory hallucinations that are not uncommon in migraines as well as olfactory hallucinations. I've also seen descriptions of, of uh, this lifting feeling, uh, the, this feeling of being moved through space. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: yeah, I guess the, the extension of the lightheadedness that comes on with the aura and all that. Yeah. Um you know, there's actually an asteroid named Bandersnatch. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah, look this up. 9780 Bandersnatch. It's a main belt asteroid, so it's out beyond the orbit of Mars, discovered in 1994 by Japanese astronomers uh, Takeshi Urata and Yasuhiro Shimizu at the uh, Nachikatsura Observatory. And it was named, of course, after the Frumius Bandersnatch.
1: Awesome. Now. One of the this is just sort of the introductory material on the Bandersnatch because the for the the vast majority of this episode we are going to be talking about what is I guess the most recent uh, cinematic uh, invocation of the Bandersnatch and that is uh, the Black Mirror episode uh, Well, it's not even a, a, an episode it's a Black Mirror film that uh, came out on Netflix December of what was it twenty eighteen so a little over a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there's a lot to unpack here. I actually
0: didn't watch it until this week, uh, so I knew you wanted to do an episode about it. I was like, okay, I'll finally see what all <laughs> the fuss is about. I was very impressed.
1: Yeah, I, I I'll get I'll certainly get more into my my varied thoughts on it later. I was impressed with it when it came out, and then. Since we were going to do the episode, I rewatched it for the first time since its original release uh, earlier this week. And, uh, and, and I have to say it – I thought it held up. I even uh, got a different ending and a different dead end at one point than I had encountered previously. So it was, it was like – every time you watch a film uh, that you like, again, you find new things. But in this case, you can actually get a different ending. <laughs> Yeah. Uh,
0: now we're going to be exploring today some of the uh, some of the science and the ideas and philosophy that are alluded to in Bandersnatch. Um, but in doing so, of course, this will involve some spoilers for this strange film. So. I would say there are a couple of places – we're not we're not going to like go through and explore every possible ending or anything yeah. like that. But if you are in the case where you haven't seen it yet and you don't want anything at all spoiled, you should probably stop here and go watch it first before you listen to the rest of the episode. But if you've already seen it or you haven't seen it and you don't care about minor spoilers that don't go all the way to all the endings, then you know, forge ahead with us, please.
1: However, some of you may be asking the question, well, what are you talking about? What is Black Mirror? <laughs> uh, so we should probably take a few minutes to just refresh you on what this is. It is, is, a,
0: is the word refresh? Would that be the word? Maybe introduce we should, you? We should shock you to the bone.
1: <laughs> All right. So Black Mirror is, in, in, in essence, a sci-fi anthology television series uh, in the same vein as The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, uh, these various shows we've discussed in the past.
0: Uh, I might call it uh, pretty often techno-horror. Not every mm-hmm. episode is the same, but there's essentially no horror movie as scary as the scariest episodes of Black Mirror, uh, especially the ones that manage to take uh, fairly plausible technological scenarios and and follow them to their logical conclusions. I mean it's uh, – it, it's a show that's very good at conjuring up the worst possible nightmares of, like, the intersection of uh, capitalism and technology.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, definitely, episodes tend to have a technological swing to the story. And, and they tend to deal on some level with with contemporary anxiety about current technology and emerging technology. Mm-hmm. What – what, what are these technologies doing to our lives? What may they do to our lives in the future? And, you know, sometimes they, they take varying speculative leaps there, of course, since it is science fiction, uh, but you I would say you typically leave an episode of Black Mirror uh, feeling a little worse about the world. I know that uh, Netflix, their current masters, are very into the whole binge model, <laughs> but I personally find it very difficult to binge <laughs> Black Mirror, in part because each episode, of course, is a self-contained story uh-huh. with, it, with, its, with, with characters and, uh, and a plot, et cetera. But then also, it's like they're often like a punch in the gut, and uh-huh. I just can't just sit there and take one punch
0: after the other. Apart from one very sweet, very nice episode, there's essentially nothing that makes me feel as bad as Black Mirror.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking about this because there are definitely some very bleak episodes. There are episodes of Black Mirror that I, I admire, that I will never watch again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but then oh, I look back at my, some of my favorite episodes. My favorite episodes are probably San Junipero, the USS Callister, and Metalhead. Two of those, one of those is still pretty bleak, but two of, two of those are actually pretty upbeat. Probably the the most upbeat episodes of the show, uh-huh. um, and. Uh And maybe that's the reason I would come back to them because if I'm going to double dip, I want to double dip for optimism's sake. Now, in terms that we can't talk about Black Mirror without talking about um, the the creator behind it, uh, the the main creative uh, individual behind it, and that is Charlie Brooker, a British writer and humorist who um, – the earliest thing that he worked on that I was familiar with was that he worked on Chris Morris's excellent news satire, Brass Eye. Um, And then he also created a pretty great zombie movie uh, titled uh, Dead Set in 2008, in which the zombie apocalypse breaks out uh, in and around a Big Brother-style reality TV uh, Mm. production.
0: I feel like 2008 was sort of like uh, maybe 2007, 2008 was like peak zombie satire movie. Yeah. And
1: the thing about this one, though, the premise sounds like a comedy. And so I acquired a copy of it thinking, oh, this is a comedy, and Uh this is the guy that worked on Brass Eye. This is going to be hilarious, and (laughs) it is not a straight-up comedy. It is a pretty terrifying film. But you see shades of that in Black Mirror. Sometimes there is a premise that – Could sound like a joke, Mm -hmm. but then it is taken and considered with such uh, intensity that it works.
0: Yeah, what if like a major tech company uh, used eye-tracking software to make sure you were always watching their ads and if you didn't watch them, they would ring sirens in your brain (laughs) and deduct money from your bank account until you started watching the ads again? Sounds like a joke, but like if you just take that seriously for a bit uh, and explore it, that becomes like a nightmare of
1: of, uh – of techno sci-fi absolutely now black mirror began in 2010 uh two seasons and a holiday special came out and ran on channel four in the uk Uh, then netflix started carrying it and netflix became uh, the owner of or the the main publisher of the program however you want to look at it starting with season three in october of 2016 it all in all it has thus far gone five seasons 21 episodes And that's not counting the film Bandersnatch, which again came out in December of 2018.
0: These bits of publisher information will actually become relevant later on as we discuss the story and the 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 ideas there.
1: Yeah, because at the end, we definitely get into some scenarios where we have to consider the fact that Netflix is the – the business daddy <laughs> behind Black Mirror.
0: <laughs> so Bandersnatch, the, the film, the Black Mirror film was actually directed by David Slade who I was like, where do I know that name from? He's done several things but one of them was he did one of the Twilight movies.
1: Yes, and I've seen that that particular one. It was the second one I think and it's, that's a, I'm I'm not a, a huge Twilight fan, but that is a very watchable Twilight movie, and it has a great soundtrack. It's got Tom York on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he also directed the Black Mirror episode Metalhead that I alluded to earlier, and there are some callbacks to Metalhead in the Bandersnatch episode.
0: Now, I guess one thing we haven't gotten fully into so far is the fact that uh, the Black Mirror
1: movie Bandersnatch is – it's an interactive movie, which makes it very unique. Right, this was the big selling point on it, and uh, and and indeed is one of the. I mean, it's it's a key part of the way you consume it, but it is also very important thematically. Like you know, true to form, uh, the creators here really thought long and hard about how to utilize um, an interactive system. Uh, um, within the work and make the work uh, comment on that system as well. The interactive system being Netflix, like the fact that the user can make inputs on the movie. Yeah, basically that's what uh, it amounts to, is you you start off watching it and it seems like a normal Netflix presentation. But then your, in my case, my uh, Xbox uh, One controller would suddenly vibrate. Mm -hmm. And then this little, uh, the screen at the bottom of the screen, you're suddenly presented with two choices and a timer. And you have to choose, uh, you know, what is going to happen, what the character is going to do, et cetera. Mm. Now... This is you know when you're just watching, checking out the film you you might not realize how much work goes into this but uh, it it took a, apparently a, a huge amount of work to shoot all these various branching paths because it becomes a, a you know this 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 tree this branching system of possibilities when you start uh, presenting the user with these interactive choices uh, for instance the the previously the longest episode of Black Mirror was an episode called Hated in the Nation uh, which uh, was eighty nine. Nine minutes long. That's that's featured length, right? What, 90 minutes is usually the, um, the length you shoot for with a sure. full film? Well, when you're watching uh, Bandersnatch, depending on your choices, the film can run anywhere between 90 minutes and two and a half hours. And in order to make this work, uh, as pointed out by Jackie Strauss in the Hollywood Reporter, uh, this means they had to shoot like five hours of footage so that they could actually cover all of these various choices. Wow! And you may watch it. Like for instance, the first time I watched it, there were plenty of scenes I did not see. Mm-hmm. And then when I watched it again, there were films, there were scenes that I saw the first time that I did not see, and I got an entirely different ending that I'd never, I didn't even know about. And then there are, of course, various Easter eggs and even I've read, quote, golden Easter eggs uh, that are spread throughout things that most viewers will not find unless they spend a great deal of time going through and going back through and backing up, et cetera, uh, with this interactive piece. Encouraging uh, unhealthy obsessive behavior. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean it it is Black Mirror. Now, as far as the choices you make in the uh, in Bandersnatch, um, you start off making very small choices that seem very inconsequential. Inco- for instance, um, choosing the main character's uh, breakfast cereal. He's pres- mm-hmm. His father shows two boxes, and you decide which one he's going to have for breakfast.
0: Yeah, I think it was what, like Frosted Flakes or Sugar Puffs or something. I remember what I realized after I made that choice. Was I was like, oh no! I think I chose the
1: brand that I was more familiar with. <laughs> ah, we'll we'll come back to that later. That that is a, an important point that we'll come back to uh, later on in the episode. But uh, but yeah, at first it's it's what kind of cereal does he want? All right, it doesn't doesn't seem to matter much, and you, and it also gives you a chance to try out the technology, mm-hmm. low stakes. But uh, and oh, and then also later on, you choose what music he's going to listen to in uh, when he's on the bus, which is kind of fun. I think you get to choose between. Uh, a Eurythmic song and something else. I can't remember what the other one is. I think is. it's
0: Thompson Twins. That's it. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and, uh, and then later on, he's in a record store, and you get to choose which record he's going to buy. And this is also pretty great because one of the choices is Tangerine Dream's excellent 1974 album, Phaedra, which is incredible.
0: Absolutely. In fact, I was listening to that again this morning while I was uh, uh, doing some prep for this episode.
1: Yeah, it's, it's excellent stuff. How, however, this time around, I forced myself to choose the other album instead, mm-hmm. the other album being uh, Aseo Tamita's The Bermuda Triangle, which— Very I, strange. Yeah, very strange work, but very, very good. I was really not that familiar with, uh, with, with this artist or this work, which is apparently kind of hard to come by on streaming unless you just find like a YouTube full album rip. But, uh, but yeah, this is just a taste of the, the soundtrack. The Bandersnatch has a wonderful soundtrack, including uh, not only these artists, but also Deepesh Mode, Laurie Anderson, great stuff. But let's come back to the choices you make in this interactive system. So again, they start off seeming largely inconsequential. They start off seeming a little bit fun. You know, it's just surface level stuff like what what's his breakfast cereal, what's his musical choice. But then they become increasingly high stakes and even nerve wracking to decide on. Like suddenly, you're, you're when your controller vibrates and you're presented with this choice, and sometimes it's dread. You, yeah, you feel this dread because sometimes the choices, neither one is is all that great. Sometimes. <laughs> the choices are kind of horrible and there's at least one point where you have no choice, there's there's something to select but there's no alternative selection mm-hmm. and that feels maddening as well and And you have a timer. You have, like, what, I think it's 10 seconds to choose something. And if you don't choose, Netflix chooses for you. But Netflix reports 94% of viewers actively made choices uh, when they watched Bandersnatch.
0: Now, in my experience, it wasn't that they chose for you at random. It was that whichever one of the two options was highlighted and it was like a, you know, on-off toggle. Like Mm -hmm. you couldn't select neither one. You were just selecting one or the other and then you could – And you could go with it or you could not go with it and whichever one you had highlighted would just proceed. Uh, So there's this kind of um, uh, – there's this horrible sense of like helplessness that that imposes on you as the viewer.
1: (laughs) I have not seen it. Sometimes I'll go into a restaurant or a bar and they'll have Netflix on playing some show. Uh, I've never seen them – uh, showing uh, Bandersnatch, uh, probably for this reason. Letting
0: all the bar patrons vote to decide.
1: Oh, well, yeah, or just going crazy, like, why is nobody clicking a button? Why is <laughs> nobody interacting with this? Don't let, don't let that choice go through. So eventually, as you, as you interact with Bandersnatch, a warping of time occurs. You find yourself coming back around to pass choices like a wanderer lost in a maze. And of course, befitting of a maze, there is a sort of minotaur in all of this. There mm. is the Bandersnatch.
0: Wait. Is it the Bandersnatch or is it the Demon Packs? It
1: is the Demon Packs, yeah. But I also, it is also the Bandersnatch. Like its design, oh, okay. is, its design is roughly based on that uh, illustration of the Bandersnatch we talked about. Okay, cool. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will get into the themes of Bandersnatch and into the nature of, of choice and free will. All right, we're back. So there are a lot of. Interesting ideas, cool themes, historical tidbits that are thrown together – well, not thrown together, uh, stitched together, reassembled in Bandersnatch uh, that that give it its unique feel. Uh, Here's just a list of some of the things. Uh, First of all, video game design circa 1984 because that is the setting, 1984.
0: Yeah, it takes place in the 80s with 80s music, 80s fashion, all that stuff. But there are also programming you know, old school adventure games for like the Commodore sixty four and stuff.
1: Yeah, another huge part of it are choose your own adventure books, um, which are you know directly referenced. And then the, there is a book within Bandersnatch titled Bandersnatch that is this enormous tome that we're told is a, essentially a choose your own adventure uh, type scenario. Uh, do you have any fond memories of choose your own adventure books? I- Absolutely. I was obsessed with them. I I loved them when I was in elementary
0: school and I would love them despite the fact that, you know, you die in most of the endings. Like it it imposes a kind of – Horrible paranoid fatalism on a child, I yeah. think, where, you know, oh, this is a book about exploring the Arctic, but almost no matter what you do, you get eaten by a polar bear or you fall <laughs> beneath the ice and you can't get out. Um, I guess my young brain was drawn to that kind of thing though. You know, I had that like morbid obsession with peril and, and danger and death and all that. But also I'm curious what is so appealing about the choose-your-own-adventure books because one thing we should say is that this is not the first interactive film, Bandersnatch. No, not at all. uh, Previous attempts at interactive films have generally been very unpopular. (laughs) Uh, I think a lot of times people don't actually enjoy the experience of choosing the outcome of a film – and I think there are reasons for that. I mean, for one thing, it's just like hard to make a story where like multiple – like so many different options of how the story could go would all be equally satisfying. I mean there's a reason that an author writes a story a certain way.
1: right? Like for, for instance, uh, one film that we've talked about on the show before, William Castle's Mr. Sardonicus from 1961 was presented, was marketed as having an interactive element in that at the end of this, you got to choose the fate for the villain. Would it be you know justice or mercy? Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing is, audiences never chose mercy for this horrible uh, villain. Of course they, not. They always chose justice. And so uh, there were even accusations that they never even shot the alternate version. Like there was the 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 idea that it was interactive was just uh, you know the the pitch uh, it was just the marketing, but there was no actual interactive element. William Castle, I think, claimed otherwise, saying yes, they did shoot the sequence. I do not know personally if if that's true or not, if if this footage has ever materialized. But what I did did read was that uh, generally people point to 1967's uh, Kino Automat as the first truly interactive film. But even that, I think there are only like four choices that could be made. Mm-hmm. And this film was also, I think, largely comedic. Mm, okay. Uh, well, I mean, I would say there,
0: there are many reasons why this format doesn't always work. For some reason, it worked for me as a kid with the Choose Your Own Adventure books. I loved those. But – uh, I mean, one problem, I think, is that it, it's hard to make all the narrative branches as good as each other. But another one
1: is just that, like... Yeah, like, for instance, w- when you finish it, there's not... I don't think there was ever a sense where I'm like, okay, that's the ending I got. Right. It's like, no, I want the good ending, or I want the the robust ending. You go back and do it again. It's yeah, more like a video game or yeah, something. Yeah, no, I don't yeah. want the ending where I randomly die. Like, <laughs> the, the story of, of Super Mario is not that he's killed by a, a mutant turtle mm-hmm. uh, three minutes into the game, you know? I mean, that's... that's that's not a, an epic tale.
0: So in some ways, I think the Choose Your Own Adventure books are sometimes better thought of as like a puzzle to solve mm. than as like a narrative to be experienced. And another big difference I will say is that one of the great pleasures – Of watching a movie or reading a book or, you know, engaging in any kind of narrative with an author, storyteller, and you as the passive audience is a surrendering of responsibility for what is about to happen in your own mind. You 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 give up that responsibility. And suddenly, you know, when when bad things continue to happen in the story, when characters make disastrous decisions that unfold and increase the peril and heighten the drama, you're not responsible for what's happening. You're just witnessing it. And that, you know, that witnessing is very fun. It's peeking through a hole in the wall and what's happening to somebody else. When they make you make decisions, it introduces this horrible tension between what you want to see versus what you think you should do. Mm. Uh, you know, like uh, th- th- that. I think there's this tension whenever you, a-, a great example would be in Bandersnash, I often felt. M- in a bizarre way, morally compelled to make the tamer, safer options. Yes. Where at the same time, I felt more interested in seeing the more kind of like dangerous, disastrous options play out.
1: Yeah, this was this was definitely my experience with my first viewing of Bandersnatch. Is that you know when the when the decisions start start hitting you? Like later on, they become like this horrible choice or this horrible choice, and it becomes harder to play this game. But Earlier on, there are moments where you're like, are you going to do the sensible thing or the more rebellious thing or even the more dangerous thing? And I found myself choosing the safer thing, Mm -hmm. Uh, like – like minor spoiler here, but he is he's offered the, the the choice between producing his dream game with this company at their offices, with their support or or saying no to them, and so like the responsible part of me is like yes, say yes to the, this is employment, this is going to be good for you like clearly you're you're stuck in a weird situation at home. you need to get out of the house <laughs> protagonist uh-huh. and uh, and so that 's the way I went. But it's ultimately not the best choice, and it kind of dead ends if you take that choice.
0: Uh, Yeah, it almost kind of uh, gives you a little slap on the wrist for making that choice. You know, so uh, he— so I don't want to spoil anything, but yeah, uh, there's a, there's
1: like a slight
0: shaming of the viewer for choosing the safe option.
1: Yeah, and this is very early on, so yeah. we're not really you know spoiling anything thing major. But but yeah, I would do that a lot. I would ta- I would make safe choices. And in fact, it it ultimately ended up reminding me a little bit of the Spacing Guild in Dune, mm-hmm. who of course used the spice to see into the future to figure out how to navigate the dangers of space. Which is helpful if you're navigating the dangers of space, but in in life and in politics and all these other choices, it, it's this road to stagnation for the space and guild because they always make the, the safe choice. And when we look at the narratives that we love. Generally, they're not about people making the safe choice after safe choice after safe choice. They're about people flying off the handles or making huge mistakes and having to deal with those. And so there is, a, I think, there's a, a learning curve there with Bandersnatch. And and so my second viewing of it, I tried to do more of that. I tried to make choices that I felt were interesting mm-hmm. or um, or more dramatic, and that seemed to work really well. And I and I feel like the 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 product rewards you for doing that.
0: Yeah. uh, So I think that tension is definitely there with the movies. And I wonder if it's more the case in a movie than in a book just because a movie is more sensorily uh, visceral. Mm. The fact that, you know, that it's actually visually presented to you in in video and audio makes it harder to just pursue, you know, your sort of lust for drama and and weirdness and whatever it is you want to see as opposed to making the safer choices. I don't recall feeling compelled to Make the safer choice the same way with choose your own adventure books. Yeah, and that that could just be because of like the lower
1: uh, sensory salience of of books compared to movies. I don't know. Yeah, maybe so. Um, I, I finally re, finally remember the choose your own adventure books as well. In part because they had them at the library and I could check them out. Yeah. Um, but also another series that I finally remember. The Lone Wolf uh, series. Were you familiar with these? No. So there are a series of these. The first one was by Joe uh, Deaver and Gary Chalk. And this is – they're like a choose-your-own-adventure series, very much fantasy, Dungeons & Dragons style, high fantasy. Uh, but there's more of a role-playing element to it. So, for instance, when you open the book, uh, it has not only a map of the adventuring world you're taking a, a part of, but there's also an action chart and a combat record uh, because you're going to end up having to pencil in your stats as you go through the story, uh, picking spells and so forth. Uh, it, it, it's more like a one-player d module. Yeah, exactly. It's like imagine – it's like a, a choose-your-own-adventure book and a one-player uh, D&D module come together into this one little tome. Uh, so I fondly remember those and I might be misremembering here, but I think I did get turned off later on when I, I reached a, a an artificial dead end in one of them. Mm. Like there was something broken and I couldn't go back. Oh, no. Yeah. But uh, – Again, I'm, my memory may not be perfect on that. If you're at all interested in this format, I do highly recommend picking up uh, one of these old, fabulous used copies of the, the Lone Wolf series. And I think they've republished them again with new artwork. But I don't know. This, the classic artwork is exactly the kind of thing I love.
0: The Choose Your Own Adventure book that I brought in today for for you to look at, Robert, is called You Are a Shark by (laughs) Edward Packard. It has a kid turning into a shark. He's like mid-anamorph sequence. Oh, man. Uh, But he also looks like he's slipping, sliding as he turns into a shark. It's pretty
1: good. That's pretty brilliant, too, like channeling something that children – uh, especially of that time would have been familiar, would have likely done, mm-hmm. and and giving this fantastic spin on it.
0: But it's the story is essentially uh, the Fingal Doppling scene from Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, <laughs> where he just gets transformed into various different animals. Do you, you know, you get turned into an elephant or a seagull, or of course a shark. I think I recall one death where you get turned into a squid and you're being chased by something. Maybe it is a shark, and you run out of ink to to disguise yourself <laughs> with. And you're doomed.
1: All right. Well, uh, coming back to Bandersnatch, uh, we mentioned the video game aspect, 1984, Choose Your Own Adventure books. Uh, there are a num- number of other elements and homages in there as well. Uh, it deals with mental illness. It deals with uh, LSD. Uh, there are allusions to Philip K. Dick. Uh, there, are, uh, There's mention of uh, alternate timelines. And, of course, it spends a lot of time contemplating this idea of, of free will and the potential illusion of choice.
0: Yeah, I think that's the main theme of it is uh, – w- is interrogating the idea of what it means to be in control of one's own actions.
1: Yeah. And the basic plot is as follows. A young programmer named Stephen Butler is obsessed with a choose-your-own-adventure style book titled Bandersnatch that was written by uh, the late troubled writer Jerome F. Davies. And he really wants to turn this into a computer adventure game and he's begun work on it on his own. So he ends up falling in with this video game company called uh, Tuckersoft and meets its lead creative, uh, this uh, programmer named Colin Rittman. And from there, it departs through these varying winding paths, reality warping uh, through madness and sometimes horror. Uh, and through all of it, there's also this, I, this feeling that there is a minotaur-like monster pursuing you, pursuing our, our protagonist as well. And this is the Bandersnatch, but more specifically, it is titled Pax. Its name is Pax, and it is, we we're told it is the thief of destiny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a great moment where the game appears to give you an option to either uh, deny worshipping Pax or submit to worshipping Pax.
1: Oh, yes. This is the Uh, game within a game. uh Mm -hmm. It made
0: me want to play the game. Yeah, yeah. It looked really cool. So something that made Bandersnatch different from most of the choose-your-own-adventure books that I remember reading, I'm, I'm sure there are probably exceptions, but in the classic books I remember reading, the story is written in the second person. The protagonist is an unnamed you. You know, you mm-hmm. go down the left hall, you get eaten by a swarm of feral pigs, you go down the right hall, you get turned into a bowl of ice cream by a magic pirate. You know, the, the, you, you you explore all the different dooms on offer to you, but it's you.
1: Yeah, uh, likewise in the Lone Wolf books, uh, as I recall, you you kind of make choices regarding how this character is put together. You have a, a fair amount of control. It is your character. uh
0: uh-huh, but- Bandersnatch challenges this formula a little bit by making the protagonist a third person character with a name and pre existing individualized circumstances. You've got Stefan, right? Uh, but then this is where it starts getting even weirder. So, not only is it this definite third person character with their own characteristics and not just a second person protagonist. There are moments where the options are uh, you choose not what Stefan does. That's how it mostly is. You know what does Stefan pick? You know what, what what does he listen to? What does he answer to somebody who poses a question to him? It then changes and gives you the option to dictate what happens to him from the outside. The specific example I recall is what messages he believes he is receiving on his computer screen. Oh, yeah. Uh, Now, of course, if you go with the most straightforward interpretation of the story, which is that Stefan is experiencing symptoms of psychosis, in a way you're still dictating the activity of his brain, but activities of his brain that he as a character does not perceive as coming from himself. They're hallucinations that he believes to be coming from the outside. And, you know, this makes me wonder about the framing of how we should think about Hallucinations that are generated internally by the brain but perceived to come from an external source are, are those hallucinations best understood as you or not um, are are there processes within your own brain that are in some legitimate sense not you, even though they are your brain they 're not anybody else
1: yeah it's it 's not really the voice of god it is the it is it is something coming from inside your brain that you are perhaps imagining or or interpreting as the voice of God.
0: Mm-hmm. But is you more synonymous with your whole brain and everything it does, or is you more synonymous with the part of your brain that you identify as yourself?
1: That's going to be very key to some interpretations of the, the basic theme explored in Bandersnatch. Right. And they do explore this theme uh, you know, um, amazingly well. I felt The second time I watched it, I, I found all these additional layers. Um, you know, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to make the best choices for our protagonist, or at least there's still that inclination that I want to do that. And at one point, there's this song playing with the lyrics, doing what's best for Nigel, and it's all— and oh, yeah. uh, XTC or—I don't know. I, I think set. so, yes. Okay. Uh, I was not familiar with that group or the, this song before, but, yeah, it's playing. And the whole scene is about, like, how his father is making— making choices for him or other times it's, you know, it's the thera- his therapist that is giving him advice about how to, how to make choices in his life. Uh, and so you have all these forces that, that help him make his choices or make choices for him and then that's also what we are doing as we interact with the product.
0: Well, yes, and in a weird way, it kind of brings you back around to to this question of, wait a minute, is he a is he a third person narrator, or are you supposed to identify as him? Mm-hmm. So when these choices are are uh, in some cases things coming to him apparently from the outside, you know, they might be messages he's receiving from some kind of otherworldly source or hallucinations. Um, are you still making choices for him or not? Uh, and, and it leads back into this theme of uh, wh- whether or not you are really in control of your own actions and what does it mean to be in control of your own actions?
1: Uh, and in this, we come to the subject of free will, uh, which is a huge topic that we return to time and time again on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, and we're not going to try to encapsulate everything <laughs> about that here. Uh, you know, it, We've talked about it in the past. We're talking about it today. We're going to talk about it in the future, uh, but you know, suffice to say— philosophies vary scientific interpretations vary uh, and then it drags in additional it drags in just about everything about the human condition right i mean moral responsibility theological quandaries etc
0: yeah i mean it it's a problem that it is such a huge topic and that almost all discussions about free will that i encounter in the wild are an absolute mess. It, yeah. it, this is my personal take. I, I notice do you ever notice how conversations about free will almost never seem to clarify anything. they almost never seem to provide any more focus or clarity than you had to begin with.
1: yeah, like sometimes it's it it's at times it feels like having a conversation with somebody in a, in a swimming pool about whether water is wet, you yeah. know? because it does get down to like, like, it seems wet to me. I am in it. It seems like free will to me because I am immersed in it. And it's difficult for me to remove myself from the experience that I'm having and, and all of and, and everything in my life that supports everything in the culture at large that supports the idea that I am making choices and form choices about my life.
0: I, I mean, I feel like some dilemmas having to do with free will are, are like they force you to choose between two options that are both tautologies mm-hmm. or both absurdities. and And any time you encounter a problem like that, I think there's a pretty good chance that the underlying disease causing that is poorly defined terms.
1: Right, yeah, and yeah, to your point, the extreme uh, versions of this are, are t- tend to come off as kind of loony, like yeah. if someone is just like, I am a completely free-moving soul, like, no, you're not, dummy. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like when we discussed in the, in the thankfulness episode uh-huh. that we put out, you know, and, like everybody's life is shaped by these other factors, these other individuals in their life, to some extent, and I feel like to argue against that is just lunacy. On the other hand if someone is saying I am a, just a pure automaton I mean there you can back that that argument up with some very intriguing uh, arguments and we'll get into some of those but at the end of the day does that match up with your experience of reality
0: I, I totally agree but I think even talking about it at that level that's already like a, a level up like having accepted some terms as unproblematic, Mm-hmm. more than I think they should be. So like – anyway, I mean I think the the main problem with free will is people aren't being clear what they're talking about before they start talking and I'm totally guilty of this as well. Uh, this is usually the case when it comes to free will and it, this happens even when we're not aware that we're being unclear. So we can't do it full justice in this short segment. I think we will try to do better than an absolute mess. <laughs> uh, so, so to try to understand what our terms actually mean, what is free will – A common understanding is I am in control of my own actions and I think most of the time for most people, this feels true. Uh, Though curiously, of course, not all of the time and not for all people. We can come back to that. Uh, But I would argue that it only feels true in a general way and it gets stickier and thornier the more you try to think about it and the more precisely you try to define those terms. So if I'm in control of my own actions, who is I? Uh, We brought this up a minute ago. Is I my whole brain? Uh, I mean also I think there's a good case to be made that other parts of your body get some kind of vote in your decision making. Mm-hmm. So is it my whole body? Uh, is it everything with my genome? Even then I would say your microbiota sort of gets a vote. Uh, I think that there are questions about what the I is but then also what counts as control? If I am in control of my own actions, does it mean that that I make my decisions with no outside influences? I mean that's obviously not true as you were alluding to a minute ago. But once you accept that outside factors have some influence over whatever it is you're talking about controlling, what's to stop you from assuming that they have total influence? I mean, what part of your decision making is not influenced by pre-existing factors like your memory and your physical circumstances and so forth? Like, what part of you can you identify that stands outside of the world? And then from the other end, paradoxically, if you were to suddenly act in a way that made no sense given your own history and memory and all of the the inputs coming in that you think of as influences on you, wouldn't that action actually feel less like something that comes genuinely from you, whatever you are? Wouldn't by this metric the most objectively free action seem like something coming from the outside?
1: Uh, You mean like if you go to to a restaurant where there's – say there's a drink menu. And you always tend to order something that is made with a, a base of, say, rum or bourbon or whiskey. Uh-huh. And instead, you throw caution to the wind one day, and you get a mezcal or a vodka drink. Uh-huh. Does but, that
0: actually make you feel more free, or does it seem like something you know something got into you? Where does that phrase come from?
1: I don't know. When I do things like that, I I, I think it does make me feel more free because I'm like, no, I'm not going to be the same person I've been every time, I'm going to try it a different direction. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to get a different type of drink. I'm going to try a different type of food. I'm going to walk a different way to the train station, et cetera. Well, I mean, I would say that this just highlights that n- neither branch,
0: either acting in character where your character has been shaped by everything that ever happened to you, nor by acting out of character where, you know, something got into you neither way really cites the origin of decisions or the origin of actions in something that's out, uh, without outside influence. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the arguments about whether we have free will actually seem to me to reduce to the question of whether we feel we have free will. But what would it actually mean to settle the question of whether we are like physically, objectively free? Uh, so maybe we should look at like a more thought out dictionary definition. So one that I found is, quote the power of acting
1: without the constraint of necessity or fate ooh or fate now that that brings me back to the demon Pax the uh, the thief of destiny i uh-huh. find myself I found myself with the second viewing of Bandersnatch returning to that title and trying to figure out exactly what it means because destiny on one hand means like the you're predestined, right? There is mm. a destiny in place for you, and you perhaps don't have any real control. It is the thing that the gods have laid out for you. That's like one way of looking at it, but another way of looking at destiny is that destiny is the thing you aspire to, like you choose your own destiny. you choose your own adventure mm-hmm. right uh, so which which of the two is the demon pack stealing from you? Is he stealing from you the power to make your own decisions? Or is he stealing from you a predestined path? Is he liberating you from this, uh, from the same tired walk to the train station and the same tired choices on the menu? Well, the funny thing about
0: a choose-your-own-adventure is that uh, even though you are making the choices on each page
1: about which page to turn to next, somebody else wrote the whole thing. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, to a certain extent, like, you can, you can apply that to life. Like, as, as rebellious as you might seem, ordering something else on the menu that you normally don't get, it's still on the menu, and other things in life are like that too. Like you are, large, you, you are constrained by the, the possibilities of of your culture, of your station in life, of uh, you know political realities, etc. But even then, is the unpredictability of a
0: behavior. Uh, at all evidence of your control or your personal volition of that behavior. Mm. I don't know. I mean, th- those things seem perhaps unrelated to me, actually.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, you can also be predictably unpredictable.
0: Yeah. Um, But uh, anyway, coming back to this definition, the one that's, uh, you know, acting without constraint of necessity or fate. So I think it can be hard to pin this down to a concrete claim. But I think what it comes closest to is saying that for any given action or moment in my life history, anything I do or think or say, given the exact same inputs, I could have produced different output than I actually did. Hmm. Um, And this this would be, I think, some way of making— Free will, a kind of like uh, a physical proposition, right? Mm-hmm. If exactly the same inputs went into you, everything was exactly the same. You could have done something different than what you did. Unfortunately, I think this is just a completely untestable assumption, right? You know, given the complexity of brains, you can never have all of exactly the same inputs that somebody had at a given moment. So you can't experiment on this to find out what's
1: true. Though we certainly love ruminating on this in our fiction. Yeah. Like any kind of time travel uh, film, any kind of Groundhog Day scenario Mm -hmm. is exploring this subject.
0: Yeah, uh, though even with most of those time travel things where people want to go back and relive it, what they actually are, are imagining is they want to go back and relive a moment with the wisdom and knowledge that they have now that they didn't have then. Mm. Uh, so it would be funny to just like replay the same instance over and over again with exactly the same physics involved and see if anything different happens without having any new knowledge or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um but even then, I mean imagine maybe uh, you could do that somehow, you know, you could just watch the same period of time play out over and over again and see if anything different happens. Even if it were true that you could have produced different outputs given the exact same inputs, would this really mean you were free? Would this be what people mean when they see free will, like they're in control of their own actions? You know, imagine there's some random dice rolling machine inside your head or a ghost or a spirit in your brain which pushes you in different directions, even if every single iota of input is the same. Is that actually freedom? That just sounds like a different kind of impetus or control
1: that is interesting that you bring up yeah randomization via uh, some sort of technology like dice yeah. or a casting of bones uh because we've we've discussed that in the past on the show how that is uh, sometimes brought up as being like that like that's the purpose of these early divination um uh, technologies, techniques, a way to randomize choice mm-hmm. and to sometimes force us towards a decision that we otherwise otherwise wouldn't make. Like in a way to free us from these uh, predestined paths that are before us, or at least you know, lean us over towards a different path that we would that is available, but we normally wouldn't go for.
0: Well, it's funny. I mean, e- either way you go there. So yeah, say you're doing the I Ching or throwing bones. Does either or not doing that, either way is one making you more the author of your own destiny than another. I'm not sure. I mean, they they have differences in outcomes. Right. But does that actually change what people mean when they say say free will?
1: I don't know. I mean, even if you randomize your choices, you are the one that will then enact that choice. Uh Like you're still the actor in your narrative.
0: And the randomization is still an input on you. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So I don't
0: know. So uh, anyway, to to sort of sum it all up, I've got a theory here. And it is that I think what a lot of us are actually circling around when we're trying to figure out how to articulate our concept of free will is this claim. And the claim is our consciousness dictates our choices of how we act. Or in other words, we're conscious of the process by which our choices are made or by which our actions are generated, right? Mm. That, that when we act, we are able to consciously be a part Of the impetus to act or consciously cause the impetus to act. Uh, And I think this one is actually testable, and we can come back to that in a minute.
1: So this is, of course. This is one of the big riddles of the human experience, and so mm-hmm. people have been thinking about this and uh, you know essentially banging their head against the wall about this uh, for thousands of years. Uh, the philosophers uh, Democritus and Lucippus saw the universe as wholly governed by natural laws and composed of uh, you know essentially indivisible atoms uh, they, they took the determinist view of life of one propelled down a flowing stream of events. Aristotle, on the other hand, is a great example of someone who stressed the individual's responsibility for their actions. The indeterminist view of life is a boat propelling itself uh, through a body of water. So, yeah, to, to what extent are you just sailing down the river, uh, you know, at the, you know with, with no power on where you're going? Uh-huh. Or are you in a boat that ha- in which you have the power to move about and even move upstream if you need to? On that note, we're going to take one quick break. But when we come back, we will start rolling through some arguments for and against free will, and then we will return to bandersnatch All right, we're back so let's start with some arguments against free will because ultimately, I think these are these are often easier to discuss sure
0: uh, I would say the the most basic one, right, is just the science of physics mm-hmm. right. Physics is very predictable. <laughs> you can, you know, given, given the inputs of, of forces and energy and all that, you can determine what's going to happen as an output of that action. And if we assume that applies to everything, then why doesn't it apply
1: to us? Right. And it basically comes back to Democritus and Leucippus, right? The, the idea that there are natural laws and they that are in place and we are not above those laws.
0: Sure. Uh, yeah, so we're acting on the inputs that come in and, you know, the, that uh, being, being pushed in one way or another by our life history and our brains and all that, we're going to act a certain way as physically reactive objects. Uh, now this is an argument of course, it's the most common argument I think against free will. But one question is, are free will and causal determinism really incompatible? Uh, not that it settles the issue. But I think the majority of philosophers who look at this issue pretty closely actually end up becoming what are called compatibilists. They they accept causal determinism. They say, yeah, you know, we're physical objects being pushed around by physical forces. But they define free will in some way that it is compatible with that, that you are a physical object being pushed around by physical forces and the whole history of your life and everything. And yet somehow free will still applies to you. This often comes down to like a, an understanding or feeling of free will. Like I was talking about earlier, like Mm -hmm. even if your actions are causally determined, somehow you feel like you have agency and that's what we mean by free will.
1: Right, right. Uh, another uh, take on this that I, I came across, uh, and this goes back to something we were talking about earlier. Contemporary British uh, analytic philosopher Galen Strawson, uh, their argument is that it that basically free will is impossible because we act the way we are. Right, uh, and this argument this argument always makes me think of uh, of Yeats uh, in uh, uh, the poem "No Second Troy." There's that line: "What uh, what could she have done, being what she is." Uh, and, and i think about that with myself like what when i look back on past choices what else could i have done being who i am you know i without the you know some sort of sci-fi foresight brought on by time travel or groundhog day shenanigans mm-hmm. like i i am who i am i am influenced by all these these things in my life and my mind is this and then what other choice would that mind have made right i mean this
0: is uh this th- that's a very good way of putting it it almost like It maybe emphasizes the fact that free will is a difficult concept because of some of the baggage brought by the word free. Yeah. To act in accordance with your nature and your
1: circumstances is not necessarily not free. Right, Like it was in my nature to responsibly come to work this morning and so therefore I did. Uh, Could I have – decided not to come into work? Could I have gone to the local, I don't know, arcade or something or whatever whatever one does when one uh, skips work? I guess I could have. In but, theory, there's nothing stopping you. Yeah, nothing at all except that is not my nature and that is not what I did because of my nature.
0: Given the circumstances of who you are and who you were this morning and what was going on this morning, you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And that's all we know is that, you know, you acted the way you were at that time because that's who you were at that time.
1: Yeah, now, that being said, yes, events could have been different. We could have had a an email from our boss saying that there was going to be like a a rock concert in the in the in the, in the, in the uh, office today that or some, would
0: never happen <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it might make me think, well, maybe i don 't want to come into work today, and maybe the easiest thing to do would be just to skip uh, i don 't know uh, again you can. Tease your brain all day thinking about what if and how this would have, this little detail or this other detail would have affected your choices. But ultimately, we only have the the version of the path behind us to look back on when we, we think about all of this. Now, two other uh, basic arguments against free will. This is one I think we'll come back to. Experimentation uh, has pointed to breakdowns between what feels like the moment of choice and what physically signals a choice being made.
0: Yeah, I think this very much complicates the idea that, again, what I think people are actually really getting at with their idea of free will is that they have conscious control over their actions and thoughts.
1: Mm -hmm. And uh, another one, and this is, again, we've been touching on this the whole episode, but myriad causal influences— uh, at least guide our decisions, if not make them for us. Yeah, hard to deny. All right, so here are some uh, some arguments for free will. The big one, of course, is that subjectively we tend to feel like we have rational, reflective control over our choices and actions.
0: Sure, I mean I can decide to do anything that occurs to me to do right now. You know, I could. Uh, throw my computer across the room if I really wanted to.
1: Yeah, and men, and the, the idea, the, the way that, that our brains enable us to simulate these possibilities really, I think, allows us to lean into that interpretation because it's like the, the Choose Your Own Adventure book. The mm-hmm. other choices are in there and if we want to, we can cheat and we can check one out and then back up. Uh-huh. And in a way, you know, we can't do that in real life except through our ability to simulate possible futures. And, And of course, that has an important evolutionary role. It has an important role for our survival. We can think about the different ways we might try to, say, steal a piece of meat from a hungry lion and escape with food and our lives and then choose the best course of action. Um, This is is important, but it can also uh, lean into these interpretations that— you know that certainly, uh, I, you know I have more choice than I actually have, or even ultimately an idea that, of course, is explored in Bandersnatch, the idea that these other alternate choices are kind of alternate timelines that they're out there. Like I saw it in my head to a certain extent, that reality where I tried to take more meat than was feasible and was killed by the lion. In a way, that exists because I just saw it.
0: Unfortunately, I would say w- about this argument. It does often feel that way that, mm-hmm. you know, like I could have done anything a minute ago. Yeah. But y- you didn't. You did what you did. So, again, this comes back to the, the, the untestability of this one. Like there's just n- never any way to prove that you could have done differently than you did in the moment.
1: Like have you ever had a like a close call where say you're almost in a wreck or you almost do something that could have conceivably gotten you killed – um, and then you have that moment of reflection. Granted, on one level, like it, it may get your uh, you know just just bodily, you're excited, right? Mm-hmm. Because this has happened, and your body's on high alert. Oh yeah. But on the other hand, part of it is sort of realizing your close proximity to this other possibility. Like I was just some minor choice, some minor bit of uh, input data away from something more catastrophic.
0: Yes, it makes you. Suddenly, you come face-to-face with how dependent you are on moment-to-moment circumstances and yeah. awareness. Uh, though I would say a lot of times when I get that like, that, like oh, you know, catch your breath about what could have happened, it wasn't because I narrowly avoided something really bad happening. It's because I suddenly out of nowhere imagined something really bad happening. Mm-hmm. Like you ever, uh, you're going down a flight of stairs and it's going fine. <laughs> but you just imagine, oh, I could fall and hit my teeth on that
1: thing and oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I do. This is, of course, this is one of my pitfalls: is to almost constantly, um, f- essentially, fantasize about bad things that could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of us do that, you know. And part of that is your your mind is exploring possibilities sure. of what is happening or could happen or has happened. And, but in doing that, we can lean into the negative possibilities too much and then our lives become this you know, abysmal choose-your-own-adventure book <laughs> of most of mostly terrible ends even though the path that you're actually on may not be leading to any of them. Um, it's, it seems like the, the curse of all this confusion
0: about whether we have free will or not and what that actually means... Could just be rooted in the fact that we can consider hypothetical alternative scenarios. Yeah, the fact that we're able to imagine counterfactuals is what make is what gives rise to this whole argument. <laughs>
1: Uh, so uh, another thing I have on the list here, and this basically is just an extrapolation of everything we're talking about uh, right now, is uh, philosophers Stephen Cave and also Bruce Waller have both argued that animals evolved with the capabilities we tend to associate with free will in order to survive, such as opinion generation, uh, deliberation, willpower to stick to a choice. And the large human brain has all of this in spades. Cave argues that the level of free will uh, that we have may actually vary from individual to individual. And he argues that we could potentially even put together a method of measuring one's freedom quotient or FQ in the same way that we, well, roughly measure one's intelligence, creativity, and other psychological factors.
0: I do think that's possible but I also think that that would be subject to a lot of debate about exactly what it is you're measuring there mm-hmm. as a lot of these actual uh you know uh human or animal quotients are I mean when when you measure human intelligence there's debate about what exactly are you measuring uh and I think the same thing would be true of freedom subject to all of these you know crazy caveats we've been talking about so far what 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 do you mean when you say freedom
1: yeah Another take on this that i 'd read in the past was uh, something that neuroscientist David Eagleman uh, called the principle of sufficient automatism and The idea here is that the, the more that we map the human genome and study the brain 's many subconscious machinations, the more it becomes clear that if free will exists it 's only a, a, a factor hitching a ride on top of enormous automated machinery. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, again, it comes – there's, there's plenty of ground in between automaton and self-moving soul where you can, you can sort of uh, move the slider towards one direction or the other and still have something that we can at least refer to as free will. But it might only
0: be a very, very little bit of something.
1: Yeah, it might, and it's it's interesting to sort of do that to, to do a little self reflection and think about that. Like, yes, I had choice in this situation, but really, how much choice was there?
0: Uh, yeah, and I I think for me at least, some of the the definition problems would still remain. Like oh, yes. I, I I'm not sure that even then that that's clarifying what the concept of freedom means there. Um, so. We can't test whether it's possible for a person to produce different outputs given the exact same inputs. That uh, just seems beyond the bounds of empiricism. You could believe that if you want, but I, I don't think there's any evidence for it. But this might not be what we really mean by free will. Maybe as I mentioned earlier, we what we mean by free will is that we are conscious of the process by which we make decisions or generate actions. And I think the empirical research is pretty clear that this is not true, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Not in many cases. Um, so just to look at a few studies undercutting traditional notions that our consciousness dictates our decisions or that we're consciously aware of how our, all our decisions are reached. Um, so first of all, I want to look at b- one by uh, Soon, Brass, Heinz, and Haynes, uh, published in Nature Neuroscience in 2008 called Unconscious Determinants of Free Decisions in the Human Brain. In this study, the authors found that they could use brain scanning to detect a person's choice between two options before the person believed that they had made a choice. So you got a very simple setup. You're supposed to freely choose between pressing two buttons. you got a left button pressed with your left hand. you got a right button pressed with your right hand. Uh, the two different hands were used because this made it easier to see which hand was about to be engaged through motor control and brain imaging. And so you take your time. You decide which uh, which button you want to press and then you note which letter in a timed sequence is displayed on a screen in front of you at the moment you believe you've made your decision about which button to push. And in some cases, the researchers could detect brain activity of the prefrontal and parietal cortex indicating which choice a person was going to make up to seven to ten seconds before the person believed they had made their choice. So this study indicates that at least in some cases, at the moment you believe that you have consciously made a choice to do something, machines can look at your brain and show that the brain has made a choice before you believe you have made a choice and predict with better than chance accuracy what that choice is.
1: This is is a study that really intrigued me, I remember when it came out, because it's basically— This idea where I think that I'm the lightning, but perhaps I am the thunder. Or at least my experience is that of the thunder. But then the the other question is, well, does that mean I'm not the lightning? Am I not both? And maybe (laughs) just I'm like I have a thunder level awareness of what I am, but Mm -hmm. there is this lightning that precedes this experience of me?
0: Well, I mean – I don't know. I mean the the decision is generated by the brain. So Mm -hmm. again, you're back to this question of what free will means. But if it it does have something to do with consciously being a participant uh, at the moment that a decision is made, there's pretty good evidence that that's not going on. The brain is making decisions before the person thinks I have made a decision. But OK, that was 2008. Is there anything since then? Uh, sure. There, here's one study with findings along these lines but applied to voluntary mental imagery. It was published just last year in 2019 in the open access journal Scientific Reports. It's by uh, Kenning Robert and uh, Pearson in uh, – I said scientific reports called Decoding the Contents and Strength of Imagery Before Volitional Engagement. Uh, and uh, again, this was published uh, in 2019. The short version here is that the researchers exposed people to two different images. So you got a red circle with horizontal lines and a green circle with vertical lines. And then the researchers were able to correlate images of brain states with mental representation of the different pictures. So they know what it's what it looks like in your brain when you're thinking about these two images separately. Uh, They could use this brain imaging to predict, again, above chance, which image subjects would choose to visualize in their head before the subjects believed they had made a choice about which one to imagine in their head. And they could make these predictions at a rate above chance, an average of 11 seconds before the person's actual choice about which one they were going to imagine. So one of the authors, Joel Pearson, uh, uh, was quoted in a statement, I believe to Medical Express, quote, We believe that when we are faced with the choice between two or more options of what to think about, non-conscious traces of the thoughts are there already, a bit like unconscious hallucinations. Uh, That comes back to something we talked about recently. Um, As the decision of what to think about is made, executive areas of the brain choose the thought trace which is stronger. In other words, if any pre-existing brain activity matches one of your choices— then your brain will be more likely to pick that option as it gets boosted by the pre-existing brain activity. This would explain, for example, why thinking over and over about something leads to ever more thoughts about it as it occurs in a positive feedback loop. And then uh, to quote from the study abstract, the authors say, our results suggest that the contents and strength of mental imagery are influenced by sensory-like neural representations that emerge spontaneously before volition. So there are things going on within the brain that we can detect with machinery from the outside that suggest what you're going to think about before you think about it. Now, I think we should be fair that it's possible this isn't always the case, uh, but there's plenty of evidence that at least in some of, at least in some cases, when people think they're consciously making a choice, the brain in a measurable way has already made a choice that can be detected from the outside. The brain has already set one course of action in motion before the conscious part of our brain is aware that we're going to choose that course.
1: So again, kind of a thunder and lightning scenario. Right.
0: Now, of course, this stuff we've been talking about is is true of typical human brains. Once you start looking at atypical neurological situations, you can find all kinds of evidence of action without the sensation of conscious awareness or choice. Mm -hmm. A lot of these are things that have come up on the show before, uh, like blindsight, uh, the fact that people can – physically react to visual stimuli while believing consciously that they are blind or that they're blind in some part of their visual field. Like you can react to, you know, raise your hand to catch a ball without believing that you have seen the ball. Or you got alien limb syndrome, where uh, something like a brain lesion can cause part of the body to act in a way that you do not feel in control of. The hand moves on its own. It moves against your will. It picks up the spoon when you meant to pick up the fork. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of course, the experiences of split brain patients, which we uh, we did a deep dive on in uh, January of 2019, the short version is that some patients who undergo a surgery called a corpus callosotomy, in which the main avenue of information sharing between the two hemispheres of the brain is severed, can seem to show signs of the right hemisphere acting and making choices without the conscious awareness or control of the left hemisphere, uh, which seems to be the part of the brain that can usually talk. Uh, And the last example led to hypotheses like Michael Gazzaniga and Joseph Ledoux's left brain interpreter model where they argue that part of what the left hemisphere of the brain does is generate an ongoing series of narrative explanations that reconcile past and present, and mm-hmm. give us the sense of the, that we understand why we do what we do. Now, of course, their model could be incorrect, but I, I think it's also possible that they're really onto something that the brain seems to have a major function of trying to convince itself that its behavior, is coherent and has rational justifications uh, and, if possible, to convince the conscious part of the brain that it's in control. I think this is kind of like at work— When you give the boss three options, you know, it's like here are the three things we came up with. And you've got the one you actually want to go with. Uh uh, And then you've got two like terrible options that are designed in order to be ignored and discarded by the boss and flatter the boss and give them a sense of control.
1: Right, which can be a dangerous exercise.
0: Absolutely. I'm not advising that as as a good strategy. I'm just saying people do it. Uh, to look quickly at one more study, I found this was uh, published in in 2018 in uh, PNAS by by uh, Darby joutsa Burke, and Fox, called "Lesion Network Localization of Free Will." Uh, very briefly, the authors here uh, defined the defined the neurologically relevant parts of free will as having two parts. So first of all, there's the desire to act, that's volition, you know, you got volitional control, and then a sense of responsibility for that action, which is the feeling of agency. So you got volition and agency. And then they looked at two neurological conditions, one that is believed to disrupt each of these functions. Uh, they looked at focal brain lesions that disrupt a volition, causing akinetic mutism, and akinetic mutism is a condition where patients are unable to voluntarily move or speak. This uh, would, of course, be a disruption of the volition part of the brain. And then lesions that disrupt agency, and this would, of course, cause alien limb syndrome. Again, alien limb syndrome, that's where you've got part of your body acting or moving in a way that does not feel voluntary. It moves, but you don't feel like you did it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they basically found that uh, brain lesions that disrupt volition occur all over the brain, but they're within a brain network that is connected in some way to the anterior cingulate cortex. And they found that lesions that disrupt agency also occur in different locations around the brain, but they tend to be defined by connectivity to a part of the brain called the precuneus. Now, again, I would note that this this acknowledges physical evidence that there are distinct brain processes involved in generating action, you know, volition versus recognizing personal agency in that action. And typical brains executing typical actions have both of these acting in sync, but brains can have either one without the other.
1: Now, obviously, we could keep going here. We could keep <laughs> discussing uh, uh, free will and what feels like free will and how it matches up with uh, with neuroscientific data, etc. Uh, but at this point in the podcast, we probably do need to bring it back around to Bandersnatch. And the question, like, okay, given all this stuff that we've talked about, what does Bandersnatch seem to be saying about all of this? Well, it, it does seem to be largely a rumination on the idea that we do not seem to have as much free will as we think we do. That, that we can resist, but it takes considerable effort to run counter to the, the current that we're stuck in. I would
0: say a thing that is – a theme that is hammered home about free will in it is the more we look at the concept of free will and think about whether we have control over our actions, the less we feel we have it.
1: Yeah. Like I was thinking – I was trying to list like all the various factors uh, and agents that are influencing uh, Stefan in the, the the story. I mean we have his mental health, his past trauma. Uh, his father, his therapist, uh, the, the the work and tragic life, the influence of Jerome F. Davies, his boss at Tuckersoft, his mentor slash hero slash friend, Colin Rittman, conspiracy theories, music, media, etc. And that's not even getting into the speculative element that there is either an actual demon entity that is the, the literal thief of destiny <laughs> uh, or that a power beyond himself is influencing his decisions, some sort of voice from beyond or the machination of a player in another world.
0: Yeah, the, the story really brings home th- this paradox, which is that I, I think it is the case that the closer we look at free will and the more we, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bring bring our, our sharpest scientific tools and, and philosophical instruments to, uh, to understand it, the less it seems to make sense and the less it seems to be there. And yet at the same time that we acknowledge that, to feel like your actions are not under your own control is not a heightened state of consciousness. That is still a problem yeah. and it, it – uh, and I don't know exactly what that signals. That may be yet another unresolved tension in the, the issue of free will that like the more closely we examine it, the less we feel like we have it and yet  genuinely feeling like you don't have it uh, the more you feel that way the more this is a serious impediment to you living a healthy life
1: absolutely now this seems this may seem like a logical place to end the conversation but one of the things that's really interesting here is that, um, is, is that we were talking about an episode of Black Mirror that deals with free will and our choices in life. And, and certainly, again, Black Mirror frequently comments on our unease regarding new technology. But then Bandersnatch itself, this show on Netflix, this this movie – this movie itself factors into some user concerns about the future of this sort of interactive viewing technology. Yes.
0: Uh, You know, (laughs) I would say one of the things that is a legitimate concern about free will, however you define it, as as murky as it is, at least one thing that we want is to, we want to think that we understand the incoming influences on our behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Like you'd like to think that if I did X, I can sort of make sense of that – it was because I read this book or I read this article or I had a conversation with this person and I connect the knowledge I gained through that or the influences of those uh, past experiences with the decision I just made. Life starts getting more difficult when you have trouble understanding what the influences on yourself are.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And we've, we've discussed some of these uh, in the past. We've discussed a number of these in the past. But technologically speaking, we have discussed advertising and we have discussed social media, uh, which are which – are- Good things to keep in mind as, as we continue here, because there might not be a Bandersnatch or a demon awaiting you in the maze of future interactive media technology, but there might just be some highly targeted advertisements, for example. <laughs> right. So uh, two uh, individuals uh, that I ran across wrote about this topic or, or, or touched on this topic. One is Matthew Galt, who wrote about uh, this last year for Vice's motherboard, and then Tiffany Shu wrote about it for the New York Times. So Galt wrote about Michael Veal, a technology policy researcher at University College London who utilized Europe's General Data Protection Regulation or GDPR um, law to request a copy of the data Netflix collected about him and his choices through the use of the Bandersnatch program. (laughs) Now, they complied, perhaps in part because uh, of Veil's status as a public person. But basically, Netflix acquires this information in order to carry out the Bandersnatch experience, which makes sense, right? It's, it has to chart your path through mm-hmm. this this complex system. Uh, but then also, Netflix keeps this information, which the company claims is in order to, quote, determine how to improve this model of storytelling in the context of a show or movie. Hmm. And, I mean, on, on one level, that sounds well and good as well, except that Veal, uh, Veal thinks that Netflix, quote, should really be using consent, uh, which you should be able to refuse, or legitimate interests, meaning that you can object to it instead. Now, in Shu's article, she points to the early choice we make between uh, Kellogg's Frosties and then Quaker Sugar Puffs. Now, both of these are real cereals, though I have to admit – I thought Quaker Sugar Puffs was made up uh, because it has this ridiculous honey monster mascot. that's mm-hmm. like su- super fun, kind of a cheddar goblin sort of thing. Nice, But it turns out this was an actual uh, UK product. It was just a UK-only product. So uh, Americans, uh, such as ourselves, uh, were perhaps not privy to it. But again, both were real products, and neither one was a paid inclusion. So it was not official product placement or product integration. And Netflix, of course, is like an ad-free product. Uh, uh, system anyway. But Shoe points to uh, some of the words of Reed Hastings, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Netflix, who pointed out during a webcast tied to an earnings report that 73% of Bandersnatch viewers selected Kellogg Frosties over uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Quaker Sugar Puffs. Oh, no, I did too. I feel so vulnerable right now. <laughs> I don't remember what I did the first time around. The first time I watched it, I also watched with my wife. Uh-huh. So we were voting on which choices. You know, we were having a discussion, okay. which I guess I should have mentioned that earlier because that adds a whole other wrinkle to the scenario of making communal choices and voting on something. Mm. But uh, on my own, I chose the Quaker thing just because I thought it looked weirder. Okay. But uh, again, I'm in the minority for doing so. So uh, first of all, I, I, th- I think this is a shame because I think the cover and TV advertisement for Quaker sugar puffs is awesome and weird again. Mm. But more to the point... Uh, As Shu points out, Spencer Wang, a Netflix vice president, chimed in and joked, and let's be clear, he was was apparently joking, that this was the most critical data point of the quarter. (laughs) Now, she writes that while Netflix doesn't run commercials and has stated that it would not use Bandersnatch information uh, for anything like this, others outside the company do see the potential, namely in, quote, the possibility of inserting brand-name products into streaming shows based on data generated by interactive programming. Now, Shu stresses that the technology to roll this out isn't here yet. But I suppose we have to, to consider two key factors in that statement. So first of all, we're in the early days of truly, uh, you know, interactive features like this on major streaming platforms. Uh, you know, assume, and that is, that's assuming that it really catches on at all. As we've discussed... Interactive cinema is not new. It's been around for decades mm-hmm. and it has largely failed to catch on. Right. Um, it is not like a driving force in our entertainment. You'll find plenty of examples of it. You also find a lot of computer games that that kind of fulfill this uh, this niche, right? I sort mean, of, yeah. Um, Those like, are also sort of failed. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I would have. There are certainly deeper dives on, say, the history of things like uh, what Telltale Games, I think, was the company, maybe that did a, a number of these things uh, that were again not not really released as they weren't marketed as interactive movies so much as they were interactive gaming experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing to consider. Um, uh, interest in interactive films has essentially gone up and down over the years, and again, it hasn't really like ignited. Uh, still, Netflix and, and also Netflix itself has only released a handful of act- in interactive titles, mostly kids stuff. Bandersnatch is their only true adult drama release uh, in this of uh, uh, this product type, though they claim to be doubling down on interactive content in the future. Uh, given you know how Netflix tends to be a little bit secretive about like what's coming out, um, or at least they don't tell you a lot. Uh, I guess we'll just have to know about it when we see it pop up. Uh, but also it's also worth reminding ourselves that a great deal of work went into creating Bandersnatch as well I think, I think I've, I've seen it written that like three times as much work went into Bandersnatch uh, versus say um, that long episode of the show that was approximately 90 minutes uh-huh. so is it cost effective content are all the limitations worked out yet for instance I don't believe Bandersnatch works on many mobile formats or, or older models like you have to have uh, you know something more updated like I tried to load it onto. my my phone, mm. uh, and I have an older um, iPhone, uh, I tried to load it on there to watch on an airplane, and it, it wouldn't work. I had to watch it through my Xbox One. Mm. And another big concern is there would need to be, I guess, enough interactive content out there tuned for this sort of thing to, ge- to generate the necessary user data to then be employed.
0: I can really see this kind of thing being used as a as a major data mining. Thing. I mean, I don't know. It seems very possible to get psychologically salient information through this. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, they're already getting information through all kinds of things. You know, a tech business can get your information through uh, through what you buy online, through what websites you visit, through what you do on Facebook or other social media. Right.
1: Like a website like Netflix already knows what kind of movies you. Have watched, what mm-hmm. kind of you like, what kind of movies you want to like, and then also, uh, you know, how you have rated things as well. And then they can serve you a recommendation of what you might want to watch in the future.
0: Right. Now, this is—so, of course, we're talking about this in possibly going multiple ways. One is using interactive choices in uh, in a film to gather data about you, and the other side would be giving— like, specially user-tailored media experiences, which we already get somewhat, of course, on websites. You know, you get websites loading with the ads of stuff you searched for on Amazon and all that. Uh, But yeah, I guess we're being forced to consider, what if that starts happening within the movies and TV shows you watch? Mm. So you start seeing product placement for specific products that are
1: aimed at you individually within the shows you watch. Right, right. Like, you know, they they know that. Well, given the serial scenario, like potentially, yeah. the the uh, the master of the content, be it Netflix or, or some other company. Uh, hypothetically, they, they might know that you are say more inclined towards uh, you know healthy lifestyle choices, mm. and therefore some sort of granola uh, you know um, health wrapped content would be ideal for you in that scenario. Or they might know that that's not your uh, uh, your your ideal cereal. Or maybe they know that you have children in the house, and therefore a children's cereal would be more appropriate. Like that's the kind of information that they could conceivably have, and then feed into uh, the the cereal that appears before you on the screen.
0: Now, that would be, of course, something we're more familiar with, just like inserting ads. You might imagine a character walking past a billboard or something in a movie, like happens all the time now, Mm -hmm. except that billboard can be, you know, dynamically inserted with new imagery or something. Right. Uh, I I think things start getting even creepier when you imagine – Something more like Snatch itself where there are alternative versions of a film that are specially tailored to you that have different narrative content mm. depending on who's watching. Uh, I mean – so one thing Robert and I were talking about briefly before we came in here is the idea that, you know, we often know that movies – can embody values, of course, you know, that like sometimes the values of, of a filmmaker or creator come through in what happens in a story. Uh, and then other times there are sort of like uh, uh, cheap attempts to display values, what would often be called like pandering, right? right. You know, like, uh, you know, cheap appeals to patriotism or something like that in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, or,
1: or, I don't know, I guess you could make an argument for awards season, Academy Awards bait as well, right? Yeah,
0: sure. Uh, you know, just like sort of... Cheap Cheap attempts to exploit the specific uh, uh, desires or value interests of a a specific target audience. Right, right. Um, And and so you can imagine, okay, well, now if a movie is made and it wants to pander, it needs to at least make a choice, Mm -hmm. right? It's hard to pander to everybody at the same time. Uh, but you can imagine, okay, what if somebody just starts making more like a Bandersnatch kind of thing, where maybe you don't make the choices. The choices are made for you based on what is known about your user profile. And so what I was imagining beforehand was you could have different versions of the movie Independence Day. You remember that speech Bill Pullman gives <laughs> before they all get in the planes and go fly off and, and fight? Oh, yes. Um, so it's this rousing moment where Bill Pullman gives this kind of innocuous speech that that could appeal to basically anybody, but you could make that speech a much more tailored, uh, specific interest group pandering kind of thing, where you could have one version of the film that plays for somebody that that's that's very inclusive. He gives a speech. He's like, "Humans will join arms together around the world. There will be no more nations and borders and creeds, and we all you know we all unite as one and stand in brothers and sis- as brothers and sisters against this." Uh, or you could have a version where he gives a speech about American exceptionalism and how we're the first. And we stand up and fight when no one else will. Or you could get, you know, you can imagine a million versions of this depending on what kind of user they think you are that, that who are watching.
1: Right. I mean, and that that kind of uh, personality profile or or worldview profile would be pretty easy to acquire. I mean, basically, websites like Facebook have that information. Like, oh sure, they, they are they are not feeding you Independence Day uh, to, with a tailored. Um, uh, speech in it, but they are feeding you, giving you a feed that, re- that, that uh, reflects your worldviews and values. And people are, are very invested in like the the
0: values of what media they consume these days. Mm-hmm. I can imagine it being judged a, a very profitable enterprise by some studios to say, well, let's just cover all the bases, you know. We'll have way less trouble if we make a movie, you know, a version A of the movie for you and a version B of the movie for you. It doesn't have to be a coherent vision or
1: picture of the world. Yeah, Yeah, this is – you know, I can't help but think on – on past films, like for instance, we talked about Conan the Barbarian on the, uh, the show in the past. Like that is a film that has a has a very particular view of what like strength means and what uh, you know how, how power works, etc. Uh-huh. And it's not everybody's uh, political or philosophical cup of tea. Sure, I mean you can. I think you can enjoy that film without focusing on all of that. But still, it's definitely there. Right. Um, and, and that's not a film, I mean, especially at the time it came out, it, it's not a film where you would necessarily ask for an alternate version of it. But again, it's very clear in what it's saying. But then you have films like, say, Patton. Patton is often brought up as an example of a film that meant one thing to one part of a divided America and another to the other part of a divided America without having to have like an A-B version,
0: Right. Yeah. I think you could say that about a lot of like war movies, especially. Mm-hmm. I think that might be sort of true of Platoon, right? Yeah. Uh, is, is that like an anti-war movie or a patriotic movie? You know, you sort of have some elements of each. You can latch on to what you want to see there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm somewhat disturbed by the idea of like, of, uh, of media filling up with these like personally tailored options that are designed to make a sort of like generic media template uh, individually palatable to the user as opposed to standing
1: for something on its own and allowing you to judge it yeah or having some level of ambiguity like does the does the the, the modern audience and like the, the the near future audience do they want ambiguity in their work or do they want like a clear cut uh, view that is expressed, uh, clear-cut values, not only of the film, but of like the creator or creators behind it. Like they, uh, you know, is, is there is there an increased hunger for that? And and if that is the case, you could easily see a way of worming around that by taking this ABC approach to film creation because then nobody can say, well, I like the character of Conan the Barbarian, but I think your view is is Pro totalitarianism, <laughs> and uh, and and you know I don't know celebrates uh, uh, toxic masculinity or, or whatever the the critique might be, and then they could say, well, th- that's all good, well and good, but you're you're only talking about one version. If you watch Conan the Barbarian, uh, you know the the twenty twenty eight relaunch of the the, the platform, then uh. you will get what is tailored to you. Its treatment of masculinity and power will be exactly what you want to see and i i mean that opens the door to a, just a big question of like what art is and what does that do to uh, uh you know to to the role of these narratives in our in our culture i remember many years ago how much of like
0: <sighs> Uh, the the new internet and the new media landscape was being sold to us, it was so often on the selling point of customization and individualization. Mm -hmm. You know, get what's right for you. Get an an experience that's personally tailored for you. And somehow I just feel like we were not able to anticipate how scary and messed up that would feel when it actually happened.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like to come back to Bandersnatch, the first time I watched it, I think it— it probably was over 2 hours that i spent questing after the happy ending and i got it and i f- i have to admit i felt a little empty when i reached it mm-hmm. the second time i tried to just again make more dramatic choices uh make a choice here and there that were just different from what i did the first time i got a bleak ending but it it felt more authentic um so uh yeah i uh, it, it's interesting to think about like how how choice potentially impacts our appreciation of a, of a work like this, especially if we're talking about increasingly interactive work in a hypothetical future.
0: Had to find a good bleak note to end on.
1: I think that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're talking about um, Black Mirror, that's uh, that's where we have to leave it. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground in there. Um, I imagine listeners will want to chime in, uh, certainly on Bandersnatch, if they have experienced it. I'd love to hear from anyone who's like, how much time did you spend on Bandersnatch? How many viewings have you given? Did you do like Joe and go in and try and find every uh, golden Easter egg? I didn't get all of them, but I got a lot of them. (laughs) Or did you do like me? Did you sort of go through it once and maybe go through a second time and maybe you haven't seen or haven't read about the other endings? And of course, Free Will, uh, you all have it or maybe you all don't have it, but you Think you have it, which <laughs> however you want to look at it, you all have some thoughts about free will. You all you all have some experience to share about this, and we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you want to check out more Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. You can certainly go to stuff to and that will redirect you to a place where you can find the episodes. And wherever you get the show, we just have to ask that you support us by rating and reviewing and subscribing. And don't forget we have another show out there titled Invention. And in Invention covers human techno history, one invention at a time. Huge thanks,
0: as always, to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson, who is doing a heroic quick turnaround on today's <laughs> episode. So praise him, everyone! Praise him. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us with uh, with notes on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind